Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking His kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. Our announcements. Okay, so today we are starting a new series, five weeks, five-week series, I think, four-ish. Um, so we are coming off of Easter weekend Easter is the most important time of the year for us as followers of Jesus. Easter is the foundation of our faith as Christians. It's the climax of the gospel, the good news announcement that Jesus came down, that he lived a life without sin, that he died on the cross in our place as a substitute so that we could be made righteous. And then he rose again from the grave, giving us this assurance that he will do the same for his people one day. So we're starting a new series on eternal hope, and the starting point for really understanding our eternal hope is really rooted in the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have in him and what has happened through his death and resurrection. Because Jesus is uh, the first fruits of the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. So this new teaching series is on eternal hope. Um, What's the eternal hope that we have on this side of Easter? Um, this kind of started with junior high, uh, the junior high kids, uh, they were doing like, what's, what, what are you guys talking about in a junior high class? You're like, what questions do you have? What? Frogs. <laughs> Frogs, lizards, and questions, big questions, right? Big questions. Yeah. Just what, what, where do we go? Yeah. So a big percentage of them were about what happens when we die? Where do we go? What happens? All those things. And it turns out that it's not just... Uh, junior high kids that have those questions. As humans, that is a normal thing for us to wonder and to consider and to want to know as much as we can about it. Um, So uh, we're certainly not going to answer every question that the junior high kids have, that that we have. Uh, That's, you know, not the point. We're going to do our best to address as many questions, you know, as possible uh, based on what we see in the Bible. Um, But the goal is really to establish a good theology of heaven And in doing so, we want to cultivate a sense of of wonder, a sense of excitement, and a sense of hope for what God has planned for those who are in Jesus, okay? So I'm going to lay the foundation for this topic this week. Uh, We're going to unpack it and talk about it for the next few weeks. It's going to be great, so please, you know, make a point to to be here, invite people to be here. Um, And where I would like to start out is with a very well-known a verse in the Bible, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. Does anyone have any guesses what it is? John 3.16. 3, All right. Let's read this together, okay? You read it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Awesome. Shall not perish but have eternal life. So what we're promised... Uh, is that we will receive eternal life when we trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But the million-dollar question is, what is eternal life? What are we to expect? Um, What are we promised? Um, We can tell from this passage and then many others in the Bible that eternal life is obviously a good thing. It's something that we should should want because it's it's, it's presented as a reward. Um, But the question that I have for us is just to like ask ourselves honestly, is it something that we actually long for, that we actually consider? 
What emotion comes to mind for you when I mention words like heaven and eternity? I'm not going to make you answer right now. Just kind of think about that. When I say heaven, when I say eternity, what are kind of the thoughts that come in your mind? I think for the most part, for many of us, it's kind of a muddled set of feelings and emotions. Sometimes we don't know what we think about it. Um, I have this clear memory of when I was a, was a kid. I don't know how old I was, probably middle school or something like that. And uh, I was at church with my family. We're sitting in a pew, um, and the pastor was teaching. I don't remember exactly what he was teaching about, but he brought up the subject of heaven, brought up the subject of eternity, and started talking about it. I don't remember really much about what he said, about what we would experience there, what we would do, but what I do remember is how I felt, and what I felt uh, was a pit in my stomach. Uh, Thinking about heaven and thinking about eternity really kind of made my head hurt and made me feel uncomfortable. And what I imagined, I imagined that heaven would be this unending church service that would just go on and on and on, would never end. Um, It would take place in the clouds, of course. I would be floating as a disembodied spirit somewhere up in the clouds, and I would spend eternity uh, playing a harp and really working on my harp skills. Like, that's kind of the the picture I had in my mind, and we laugh, but if you Google heaven and say, what, show me pictures of heaven, that's all it shows, you know? And so it's just this, like, vague idea that kind of floats around in in our heads, so those thoughts made me really sad, <laughs> made me really uncomfortable. Uh, it felt really unnatural to me to think about that being my future in heaven. So not only did I not long for heaven, but it was something that I was actually dreading, that I was actually fearful of. And it made me think that when I got to the end of my life, if I died or if Jesus returned, that that was going to be the end of, that was the end of the good stuff. That was the end of the joy, all the fulfillment that I had found in this life. It's out the window because it's going to be the never-ending church service with kind of that one stanza that just keeps going and going and going and going. And that's the picture I had in my head. Um, But also, even as a young kid, I knew that that's not how I was supposed to feel. You're not supposed to feel that way about heaven, right? What emotions do you think that brought to the surface for me as a little kid when I was like, I don't actually, I'm not exactly excited about this thing called heaven and this space that I'm supposed to be spending all of eternity. What what emotions do you think that brought up for me? I felt ashamed. I felt shame, you know, that I felt that way. I felt hopeless, you know, a lack of hope. Um, and I certainly didn't want to like share that with anyone, not my, not my parents, not anyone else, not my pastor, because that made me feel like I wasn't getting something. I was missing something. Does that experience feel familiar? Has anyone else kind of felt that? I may be the only one. If so, I'll take it on. That's fine. You know. Um, what I do believe is that I don't think I was taught any of that in church. Like the whole like floating in the clouds, playing a harp. I don't think I was taught that, you know, like that would have been problematic, you know, but I also don't remember being taught much about heaven. I don't remember talking about it, you know. What I do remember is a heavy dose of eschatology, teaching on the end times, the rapture, the mark of the beast, the millennium, Armageddon, things like that. 
And those are important things. I'm not saying, I don't want to make light of any of that or studying any of that, um, studying in times and the future and things like that is important. But I also feel that sometimes it can be like a married couple who spends all their time thinking and preparing for like labor and delivery without actually giving much thought at all to what it would be like to be a parent, to have a child, to raise a family, to like create a family together. There's just, it's important to be prepared and know labor and delivery. Like this is an important part of having a child. But also, what's on the other side of that? What's the excitement and the joy that you experience as a parent? And so... Um, it's just interesting to me. I was, I was reading a book on heaven, and the author, he was making this point about how we don't really teach or talk on heaven all that much. Um, he referenced uh, several really respected books on theology and doctrine, and many of these were like pushing a, a thousand pages long, like massive books. And he was like counting. He's like, but you know, out of those thousand pages, there's like one or two pages on the doctrine of like our eternal state in heaven. It's almost kind of like a footnote, you know? And um, what I think is that in a vacuum of biblical teaching, in a vacuum of right theology and thinking about heaven, um, other things will fill that vacuum. Our beliefs then become shaped by things like pop culture, by movies, by other religions, by other philosophies. They're being formed by something. And what I also don't think is a coincidence or any wonder is that we find ourselves living in a culture right now where there is just widespread hopelessness, you know? A lack of hope in the state of the world, a lack of hope in the future and what's to come. There's this hopelessness that's kind of like throughout a lot of life, you know, right now. And in the Christian story and Jesus in heaven, we have this beautiful picture of hope. So where's the disconnect, you know? That's what I want us to kind of wrestle with. Um, that's why we're doing this, this uh, teaching series. We're going to spend some time focusing on what the good news is of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how, what that means for our eternal future, but also how it impacts how we should live our lives today, how we should be hopeful about the future, and also how we should be hopeful today and why that should be a hope that we should want to share. Not be ashamed of sharing, you know, but that we should be hopeful because that's the true hope that we have as believers. It was a long intro, but that was the intro. Uh, so I'm gonna pray for us, okay? Father God, we thank you for this, uh, for this day and this time uh, that you've made, that you've set aside for us to gather as your people, as your children. God, uh, we thank you for Good Friday and Easter, the reminder that you have made a way for us to know you and to be your children through Jesus, who has dealt with our sin on the cross. We thank you for the hope that we have of resurrection, our future hope of, of heaven. And God, uh, we want to hear what your scriptures have to say about that, um, to turn away from false ideas and teachings that we all have in our minds, God. Give us a true hope and a picture of what you can reveal to us about what we can hope in, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, how did we get the messed up picture of the people with angels' wings floating in the clouds, playing a harp for all of eternity? Um, I want to talk briefly about some belief systems or uh, isms. Um, I believe that these have incorrectly shaped our theology of heaven. 
And there's undoubtedly a lot of these, but I've just identified six for us to just really briefly go through today. Don't worry, you're not going to be in a philosophy class. If you were, I would not be the appropriate person to be teaching that. But here are these six worldviews that I would like us just to to understand and, and consider how they've kind of shaped our beliefs. There's going to be a slide up here that, that outlines them one by one. Uh, there's uh, Platonism. There's New Ageism. There's Naturalism. There's Secular Humanism. Nihilism. And Universalism. So very briefly, going to go through each of these very quickly and kind of talk about what the general belief and tenet is on kind of this worldview and how it has seeped into our perspective and our beliefs in eternity. So number one, Platonism. So Plato was a Greek philosopher. He lived about 400 years before the time of Jesus. So his teachings were already extremely influential in the time of Jesus, uh, in the time of Paul and the early church. But they're also extremely influential today in Western society. In fact, probably more influential than any other thought and thinking than Christianity in Western society, I would think. And Plato, this philosopher, he taught that a human was made up of their soul and their body. They were made up of the physical and the spiritual. And what he taught was that the spiritual part of you, the spiritual part of the world, was good. But that the physical body, the physical world, it was obvious to see that it was corrupted. And so he taught that it was actually bad. <clears throat> So this idea of, of being disembodied spirits for eternity is heavily shaped by Platonism and that thought. So what I want to do with each, each of these like, worldviews is I want to like, paint a picture of like, here's very simply, very simplistically, kind of the belief system that we've gotten from that and how it's kind of seeped its way into our worldview. Platonism has uh, taught that the physical world equals bad. That should be up on the screen, I think. Yep, great. Uh, the next one, New Ageism. So uh, New Ageism is a broad school of thought that's largely influenced by Eastern religion. Um, it's a belief that there's a higher power or state of consciousness that you can tap into and experience, but it's not a person. It's like a universal energy source that you can tap into. So think about Star Wars. Uh, may the force be with you. Uh, the force in Star Wars is kind of an idea of that. Or when people talk about the universe like it's God, you know, if I do good, I believe the universe is just going to take care of me, you know, like it's some like guiding force. Um, most New Age thinkers believe in the, in the afterlife, but it's an impersonal experience. Just like when you die, like the, the best case scenario is being merged into this energy uh, of the universe. So what we have from New Ageism is the afterlife is impersonal. Next is naturalism. Uh, that's a school of thought that really took shape after Charles Darwin introduced the theory of evolution. We could come up with a reason for why we're here, and uh, we didn't need God anymore. And so uh, naturalism teaches that the physical world is really all there is, that all of life can be tested and explained through science. And so in naturalism, this worldview, there is no such thing as the supernatural. There is no spirit, no spiritual life. There's no heaven. There's no afterlife. When we die, that's it. That's the end of it. 
So that's what we get from naturalism. Death is the end. Secular humanism. This is a worldview that came out of the enlightenment and naturalism, and it teaches that as humans, we are able to pursue truth, reason, and morality, being a good person, without needing God. We don't need a God anymore. We can just decouple ourselves from God and pursue the better life without him. They believe that because of reason and morality, uh, that humans will increasingly make the world a better place, more of a state of utopia for humans. And so, very simply, secular humanism, what we get from that is that moral humans, good humans, fix society without God, without the need for God. Nihilism. We're almost there, y'all. Two more. Nihilism. So this world uh, worldview finds its original roots actually in Buddhism, um, but probably the most famous nihilist was uh, Nietzsche. Nihilism is this view that life is ultimately meaningless, that there's no purpose to life, that there's no goal, end goal in life, and even that ultimately there's no truth that guides us in life. There's no such thing as truth. So what we... What nihilism has contributed is that life is meaningless. And then the last ism uh, to consider is universalism. So this is a worldview that does believe in God. It does believe in an afterlife. But it believes in one where everyone is saved and ultimately everyone spends eternity in heaven. So what we get from that one is uh, universalism teaches that heaven is where everyone's going. Uh, so those uh, up, on, up on the screen here, uh, you may be wondering why we're taking time to go through all these different worldviews, that this is kind of an unusual sermon. Um, but I want to do this as an exercise just to demonstrate what a cocktail of worldviews that are very much present in our world and are very much shaping the way that people think about heaven and think about the afterlife. In fact, you may not even realize how much one of these worldviews has influenced the way that you think about heaven and the afterlife. <clears throat> Here's the deal. Every single one of these worldviews throws us off of the truth that God's word actually teaches about heaven. And believe me, the enemy is very content to leverage any of these six or any other you know, worldviews, any angle to cause us to stumble in our faith perhaps even worse, to cause us to become indifferent to our faith, to our hope uh, in Jesus and in our eternal hope that we have in him. Also, our view of the future, our view of heaven shapes how we live today. So a right view of heaven helps us to live with hope in a culture that's filled with hopeless people. So let's leave these up on the screen. I'm curious, talk to me here for a second. Any of these worldviews, have any of these really had an impact, you think, on the way that you think about eternity? Maybe a couple people, just like, which one and why? How has it, it impacted the way you think about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's the reality. Every single one of these worldviews leads us to hopelessness. The good news is that every single one of these is false and that the Bible and God's story gives us a much better perspective. And so what I want us to do is I just want us to look at a passage of scripture uh, to consider what the Bible has to say about all these opposing worldviews. In this uh, uh, teaching series, we're going to spend a lot of time kind of in the bookends of the Bible, kind of like the Bible Project video did. 
looking at kind of Eden and uh, uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, and then a lot at Revelation 21 and 22. So today we're going to be in Revelation 21. If you've got a paper Bible or an app you want to turn there, feel free. It will also be up here behind me as well. Here's the context for this passage. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It was written by John. He had had a vision of the future and of heaven. So we're picking up, obviously, at the end of this book, second to last chapter. And so uh, this happens after Christ has returned. Uh, Jesus has already defeated Satan in the final battle. And in chapters 21 and 22, we get this picture of eternity. So I want us to read in uh, Revelation 21, starting in 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Skip down with me to verse 22 in that chapter. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What stands out to you in this passage? Um, so to me, this is a much more hopeful picture of eternity than the one that I, you know, had kind of manufactured in my head. Um, so I want to revisit those worldviews just briefly and compare them to what we know from this passage. So the first one is going to be up on the screen. Platonism says the physical world is bad. So how many of you have heard it said that you should become a Christian so you can go to heaven when you die? Have you heard that kind of just language? Um, subtly, by saying, go to heaven, it evokes kind of this idea that our eternal state is to abandon um, our physical existence on earth and exchange it for purely a spiritual existence. Kind of, you know, the picture in the Bible project of the person leaping from earth and kind of like diving into like a spiritual existence. So for me, this is like a big stumbling block. As a kid and even as a a grown-up, the idea of spending eternity as a spirit in a cloud, it feels unnatural. Um, and it should feel unnatural because you and I weren't created for a non-physical existence. You, as a person, are body and spirit intertwined together. That's how you were created, and you were created that way for eternity, not for a temporary period. So this passage with the physical world, like what we see in Revelation, is that God's plan isn't to abandon the physical world, His plan isn't to abandon bodies because they're corrupted by sin or death like Platonism would teach. But the solution, the better worldview, is that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in this new heaven and new earth that's remade, there will be 
We will have physical resurrected bodies like Jesus had after he resurrected. And what we know about the resurrection is that after Jesus rose from the, from the grave, he had a physical body. His disciples could touch him. He ate food with them. Um, so I think this is an important one. You know, all these are important, but God is going to create a new heavens, a new earth, where we will have physical resurrected bodies dwelling in his midst, and he will be there with us. God will make his dwelling place with us. He's going to live with us in a new heavens, a new earth. So the answer, the Bible's answer to Platonism, if they say the physical world is bad, the Bible's response is God's going to make a new heaven, a new earth. So new ageism, the idea that the afterlife is an impersonal force, remember like the force, um, the Bible in response to that does not give us a picture of an impersonal, uh, impersonal eternity, impersonal uh, uh, afterlife. The Bible teaches that Jesus will be there in heaven. The Bible teaches that other people will be there in heaven. It will be relational. So you weren't made to be absorbed into some, you know, impersonal energy. You were made for perfect community forever, not to be alone, you know? So the response, the Bible's response to new ageism and the belief that the afterlife is impersonal is actually no. What the Bible teaches is that perfect community is what we have in store for us. Naturalism, the belief that the physical world is all there is, that after you die, that's it. The Bible teaches that humans actually were designed for eternity. You're not designed for just a short you know, period of time. God has made you body and spirit for eternity. <clears throat> Secular humanism, uh, remember that one? That was the idea that humans can create a better society on earth by pursuing things like reason and truth and morality apart from God. We're going to, the good life without, you know, God bringing it. Secular humanism says uh, moral humans can fix society without God. Like Ben said, I kind of look at that and I'm like, eh, I don't think that's working out so great, you know? Depends on the day. Um, it's good for us to long for a better and ultimately perfect society. That's a good thing that we should have, that everyone should have, humans should have. We should want to create a better society. But the solution isn't to pursue that apart from God. In fact, it's, that's hopeless, you know, to pursue that apart from God. Have you guys heard that song, Is He Worthy, by Andrew Peterson? I know Miriam has. She mentioned that the other day. It's kind of this like almost back and forth of a liturgy. Like, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Um, then it skips ahead. It says, is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. It's good for us to look around and see brokenness in the world and long for it to be made right. And it's good for us to participate in that and make things right. We're going to talk more about that throughout this uh, teaching series. But the answer is not for us to detach and decouple from God, from the force that actually is able to repair the world and remake it and renew it. So secular humanism says moral humans can fix society with God. But verse 5 of this passage, it says, And he who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, says, Behold, I am making all things new. 
So the Bible's response to secular humanism is that Jesus is actually the one who is making all things new. And that's really good news because it's going to be by his definition of what is good, not ours, because ours is all over the place and changes constantly. And it's even more good news that he wants to engage us in that project, not by our strength, not by our vision, but he engages us in that. Jesus is making all things new. Nihilism teaches life as meaningless. You were made for a purpose. In the new heavens and new earth, you will experience purpose fully. A little bit uh, further along in Revelation, in verses 22, or uh, chapter 22, verse 3, it's going to be on the screen. Just a little bit further on in the story, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. It is the new Jerusalem, and his servants will worship him. Your purpose, what you were made for as a human being, is you were made for worship. You were made to worship. And everyone worships something, someone. Like we all pick something, pick and choose. We can worship ourselves. We can worship other things. You were made. The only fulfillment, true fulfillment that you'll find is when you attach yourself and worship the thing that you were created to worship, and that's God. So perhaps that makes you think, like at the beginning when I said I was freaked out about thinking about eternity as one long hymn or church service that went on and on and on. I think that we have to expand our view of what worship is. It's, it's not that like singing and gathering together as a church is not worship. It, it is and can be worship, but worship can also be much more broad than that. Worship is a heartfelt response to God and giving our devotion to him and doing everything to his glory. And so worship is so much bigger than just singing. <clears throat> we'll talk about that more in coming weeks, but uh, what we learn from that is that, what do we learn from that? Oh yeah. Nihilism says life is pointless and meaningless. The Bible says, no, it's not. You were made for worship. That's your purpose. And it's going to be great and glorious. Lastly, universalism, uh, is the teaching that everyone's going to heaven. Um, that our default destination as humans is heaven. But the problem is, is that just isn't true either. If, you look, if we look at uh, verse, uh, chapter 21, 27 of Revelation, at the bottom of that passage that we studied, it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. And uh, John's talking about the new heaven, new earth. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the universalist says that heaven, everyone's going to heaven. That's their destination. But the Bible actually says that heaven is for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And this brings me to one of the main reasons that I think we don't like to talk about heaven or consider it is because it brings up the really uncomfortable uh, topic of hell. We don't like, if we don't like to think about heaven, we definitely don't like to think about or consider hell. But I think it's important for us to recognize that as humans, like our default destination is actually not heaven. It's hell. So that brings up the question, why would a good God send anyone to hell? And so I want to go back to, we started with John 3.16 at the beginning. I'm going to take us through that real quickly. Again, just go a little further. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we were born longing for heaven for a rightness, but the problem is sin, which we were all born with. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is what separates us from God. And the wages of sin is death. But Jesus provides a way, a way of rescue. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God actually made Jesus become sin so that he could be our representative in our place and deal with the wages of sin, which are death. So those who place their trust in Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, those are the ones who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. But ultimately, God's going to grant people what they love most. And if we love our way instead of God's way, then so be it. The Bible refers to that as loving darkness, and God will give people over to it because darkness has no place in God's good kingdom. If God allowed sin to exist in the new heaven and new earth, it would become hell, especially if given eternity to fester. So in order to wipe away every tear uh, from every eye to get rid of sin and death once and for all, God's judgment is necessary. So as uncomfortable of a topic as hell is, it's important that we acknowledge that it is very much as real as heaven is. And it's reckless for us to completely ignore it. But I want us to end this time, this teaching time, uh, with assurance um, of what Jesus has done. So we're going to take communion together. Um, I think this is the only gluten-free communion we have this week. Maybe there's one back there. Um, So you have the bread and the wine and juice in front of you. Anytime you talk about the topic of eternity and heaven and hell, um, it can bring up feelings of doubt and worry. People thinking like, what if I'm not a Christian? I want to encourage you that if you've acknowledged the sin and darkness in yourself, and if you've confessed that sin and admitted that you need a Savior, and if you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. And your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So that's good news. And you have so much to look forward to, eternal hope in Jesus. And Jesus gave us this meal to remind us of what he did on the cross to, to purchase us, to make that possible. And we'll, we'll take this in a moment. But I also want to speak to anyone who may uh, not feel like they've ever made that confession or have, maybe don't feel like they've placed their faith and hope in Jesus. And so if that's you, I know most everyone in here, um, I would love to talk with you and pray with you during time of singing here in a minute or afterwards. I want everyone to be able to walk away with the assurance and hope that we have in Jesus through this meal and what God promises us. So take the communion, take the bread, and um, this bread represents Jesus's body that was broken for you. This wine or this juice, it, it represents Jesus's blood that was shed for you. So dip the bread into the wine and eat And remember God's great love for you and his sacrifice that frees you from sin and death and and gives you the promise 
and hope of eternal life. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Um, God, we thank you that your story, the story of the Bible, of you bringing earth, heaven and earth back together, reconciling heaven and earth, and doing so through Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. God, the story that you give us is so much more hopeful and so much better than these other worldviews, than any other worldviews that we would make up, God. So I pray, Lord, that um, these words would be good news to us, that we would take comfort in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, uh, that if we need to uh, uh, consider confessing our sins and um, uh, repenting of our sins and trusting in you as our Lord and Savior, I pray that folks would make that decision as well today, God. Bless this time, the rest of this time, as we sing. Um, we want to glorify you, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.